What's up, everyone? This is episode 229 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Okay, so originally I had several things I wanted to talk about at the top of today's show. I was going to do a little segment on Fanatics events, but you guys probably already know how I feel about that and their aggressive takeover in general. I wanted to talk about a couple card shows I went to this past weekend, but I did an 18-minute video on my YouTube about that, so you can go there and check that out. The main reason I'm bypassing this stuff, though, is I've got a segment for you today about 1971 Tops and 2000 Tops Heritage, two sets that both utilize the same design. I started piecing this whole thing together, and it ended up being a lot bigger than I intended, but I'm happy with the way it came out, spent a lot of time on it this week, and I can't wait to share it with you, so you'll want to make sure to stay tuned for that. Before I get there, though, I realize it's been a week or two since I've done a mail segment, so I've got to stop, and I definitely have to do that for you. I'm going to lead right into that. I've got quite a few cards I want to talk about this week. Uh, Well, really, it's only four, but that's a lot for a mail segment. So the first card I got in that I want to talk about is a 2013-2014 Panini Innovation Stained Glass Insert of Paul George. Yes, the Paul George cards keep coming. And yes, that countdown segment of my top 10 will come at some point, I promise you. But uh, Innovation is a product that I've talked about quite a bit before. You might notice a trend here. I'm picking up the products and the brands and the types of cards that I have for a while now. For any of the pre-Panini guys out there, these Innovation stained glass cards remind me a little of the stained glass cards from Topps Gallery. Although, truth be told, I think I like the look of those better. But guess what? Reggie Miller wasn't in that set. And this Panini version still looks pretty nice. It's got a big checklist too. And this Paul George is one of the last ones I needed for 2013. Now I just have to track down the gold parallel, which I haven't seen in a long time. So if you do see that, let me know, or please keep an eye out for that. I would appreciate that. But um, speaking of very specific parallels I'm picking up and gold parallels, the next card I got in was a 2022-23 Prism Gold Parallel of Aaron Neesmith, number 10 out of 10. And I've kind of given up on trying to get every pacer every year. I, and given up maybe is not the right term, but I'm not as aggressively seeking them or spending on them as I have in past years. And believe it or not, it was Malcolm Brogdon that broke that trend. There are too many Brogdon buyers out there, but I still want to get as many as possible. I just, I don't feel like I have to get all of them, but get as many as possible. And I can still do that with guys like Neesmith. He's not going to break the bank. So this is actually my first 2022 gold that I've got in hand. And I have to say, it, it seems kind of dull to me. I know that sounds kind of weird to some of you, but not all Prism Golds are created equal. And um, I don't know, maybe three or four months ago, I did a comparison video on my YouTube channel of the first 10 years of Prism. And if you've seen that, you might know some years pop way more than others. So I need to do an updated version with this new one so people know that uh, it, it's not horrible, right? It looks good under the light, but 2022, otherwise, it ain't it. Nonetheless, if I see another cheap 2022 pacer and I have a chance to grab it, I will not hesitate to do so because I think they look great in the binder together and it's a fun way to track the different rosters from year to year. Okay, 
Next up is a 2022-23 Panini Recon Draft Night autographed of Benedict Matherin, number 12 out of 16. It's another card I've talked about quite a bit lately, or another set I've talked about. Uh, I like them because they use a piece of material that's signed on draft night. I've found that a lot of guys are a little more enthusiastic about signing, you know, whatever it is, 30 or so stickers on draft night compared to the 10,000 or more stickers later on. In Matherin's case, it's probably the nicest looking auto you're going to get from him because he's already signed so much stuff for Leaf and Panini, and he's got a pretty small auto as is, but this one is a decent size. And as I've said before, I bought these pretty consistently for a handful of years now, and my experiences have taught me that you want to let the first one or two of them go that show up, but you usually need to pounce on the one after that because there's not a lot of them and they dry up quick especially now that they got creative with the numbering and they split the 32 copies up among multiple parallels. I wasn't really a big fan of that, but, you know, whatever. If I can get any of the parallels, that's fine to me. But they used to be just numbered to 32. Now, in retrospect, I can't always say that jumping on one of the earliest copies has worked out the best for me, especially not last year. So seeing as all the pre-flawless patches were non-associated, When it came to Chris Duarte cards, I targeted the Draft Night Auto as one of my must-have rookies, and a couple showed up. Uh, I made a strong offer on one, and the seller accepted immediately, which kind of made me wonder if I came in a little too strong. I've since seen a couple in for like, I don't know, a fifth of the price, maybe even less. So I would say that that gamble didn't go as well for me as it could have. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I wanted the card. I ended up with it, so it's not the worst thing in the world but you never want to spend unnecessarily. Anyway, I watched a couple of these Matherin ones end, and I was trying to gauge when to jump in, and one ended for cheaper than I got last year's Duarte, so I took that as a good sign, because I also think Matherin has a lot more promise than Duarte. So another one showed up. I made a series of offers that were marginally lower. Eventually, we came to a deal, and the rest is history. So now, believe it or not, the only Pacers draft night auto I need is Edmund Sumner from 2017, and that one shouldn't cost me too much when it eventually shows up again. But that wasn't my favorite mail day from this past week, because the last card I got was a 2020 Panini Immaculate Collegiate Rookie Patch Auto of Tyrese Halliburton, numbered 39 and 49. And I know you might be hearing that and thinking collegiate, right? Normally I shy away from the college stuff, but Tyrese Halliburton is a bit of a unique situation. As I've talked about before, Pacers have got him locked up for the next six seasons, and I really, really enjoy watching him play, but we didn't draft him. So normally I would try to pick up something that looks a little more neutral, like a draft night auto or something like that, and then I'll wait for Pacers stuff to come around afterward. Well, guess what? Class of 2020 didn't have a draft night auto because that was the COVID class. Uh, coincidentally, the Pacers now have four lottery picks from that draft. So I thought that was kind of funny, but, um, that also meant that all of Hal Burton's rookie relics, save for the game worn stuff in flawless, all of the rookie ones were non-associated except for the college immaculate stuff, which was player worn. And I have to give credit to vintage Pacers, Steve here. He's had one of these for a while now, and he's been trying to tell me how nice they look in person and that I needed to pick one up. Well, he finally convinced me, and they really don't get listed often. So once he convinced me, it's like, all right, I'm going to watch, find the next one that comes up for auction. There's one listed at Buy It Now, 
If I can, you know, get it for a price in between there, I'm happy with that. So this one shows up, had a nice auto, had a nice patch. Budget-wise, it was a good time for me to pick it up. So I ended up winning it, and I'm very happy to have it already. I think once this season rolls around, I'll be even more excited about owning it, if that's even possible. So you might have seen it on my social media earlier this week. I think I posted it on Tuesday. Don't be surprised if you see it there sometime again during the season as well. All right, before I move into today's main segment, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com, your one-stop shop for group grading with their latest direct grading service level. This streamlined direct grading option will allow your cards to be submitted for third-party grading with, get this, a one-week turnaround. Can't beat that, right? So visit the ComC blog for more details and check it out for yourself. Additionally, some of you have asked me for ways you can help support this show. The easiest way is through my affiliate links like eBay or Amazon. And using these links will cost you absolutely nothing, just an extra 30 seconds or so of your time, but it helps support the show. To access these links, simply go to waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store logo you are going to shop at, shop as planned, you know, just click my link first and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hey, this is Bob Nettleke, former Indiana Pacer. Played on a few championship teams, had a lot of fun. You know, I'm listening to the Wax Museum Podcast, one of the best there is. Okay, so you might have seen an Instagram reel I posted earlier this week showcasing a little project I'm working on, a multi-set project that includes two similar-looking sets from two very different eras. 1971-72 Tops and 2000-2001 Tops Heritage. Now, I've got a good head start, but my intentions are for this to be a slow build project, as a lot of big sets are. Although, if I do finish it quick, I'll just move on to something else. So it's not a big deal. You know, I always find something else to work on. And that might happen, because truth be told, none of the cards in either set are all that rare. I could probably hop on eBay or ComC, finish things out if I wanted to. But I want to go about it in a more old-fashioned way, digging in dime boxes at shows, trading with friends, buying the occasional card online, and so on. Anyway, now that I've been reading all about these sets and spending a lot of time with them, I thought it would be fun to profile both sets here on the show, so that's what I plan to do today. And it only makes sense to tackle this chronologically, so I'll start with 71 Tops, which is definitely going to be the more detailed breakdown of the two. Now, I'm not going to cover the entire history of cards up to 1971. I made an attempt at that in episode 53, but I do feel like I need to give you a little context leading up to that point. So, as most people know, when it came to sports cards in the 50s and 60s, baseball cards reigned supreme. That's not to say that companies didn't try basketball cards in that era, uh, because they did, but the interest just wasn't there. And prior to 71, there was only a handful of dedicated basketball sets, So you had 48 Bowman, 57 Tops, 61 Fleer, uh, 69 Tops, and then 1970 Tops. So as interest continued to build, Tops continued to manufacture and market these cards over the course of the decade. I mentioned 69 and 70 Tops. Those are both what we refer to as tall boy sets um, because they're taller, right? It makes sense. Well, the 71 set that I'm going to focus on today switched back to the standard card size that we're more familiar with. Some people have speculated that the switch back to that smaller size was partially because the 71 set had more players 
and the standard size would allow them to fit more players on the uncut sheets. And that sounds plausible, but I've never seen that confirmed anywhere. So, you know, don't quote me on that. Take that with a grain of salt. Just know that that is one of the theories. But we do know for a fact that the base set had a lot more players than the years before. And there's a good reason why. It added an entire professional league on top of the NBA teams it already had. You see, at this time, there were two competing professional basketball leagues. You had the NBA that I already mentioned, that had been around since the late 40s, and then there was the American Basketball Association, or the ABA, that had been founded not too long before in 1967. So, while the 69 and 70 top sets were NBA only, Tops now elected to add the ABA guys as well, which, I'm in my mid-30s, that's not something that a person from my generation can really wrap their head around. Two rival leagues in the same set. That would be like if the WWF and the WCW joined together for a set in the thick of the Monday Night Wars in the 90s, which obviously didn't happen. In the 60s, though, I guess that kind of a thing was more common, though, because not long before that, the 68 Tops football set had cards for both the AFL and the NFL, and this was before their merger was complete. Now, with that being said, you know, having the two rival leagues in one set, yeah, it's just still weird to me, but it is what it is. It happened. This new joint set in 1971 contained a whopping 233 cards. And in looking at the checklist, the first 144 guys were NBA guys, and then the ABA guys accounted for the rest. And not every card was a different player, though. Just like a lot of sets today, you had multiplayer cards, you had league leader cards, you had championship cards, stuff like that. Oscar Robertson was card number one, which they had just won the title, so that seems intentional to me. Now, aside from the usual stars, which would have been the big names of the league, I think people are far too dismissive of this checklist as a whole, because I've heard people say, you know, well, there aren't a lot of big rookies in there. You might hear about Dave Callens or Rick Barry, maybe even Bob Lanier, but when I hear people say that, I want to ask them, you know, what's your definition of a big rookie? And I guess they're looking for a Julius Irving or a Wilt or a Michael Jordan. But I went through this checklist real quick and counted at least 13 Hall of Fame rookies in the set. Because you have to remember, the ABA guys that hadn't logged significant time in the NBA, they hadn't had cards before. So you had a guy like Roger Brown, who was already in a weird situation. He was banned from joining the NBA in the early 60s. He signed up for the ABA as a 25-year-old rookie in 1967. Then he played the better part of four seasons before this set even came out. So he was almost 30 years old before he got his first card. And that's a Hall of Fame rookie, right? So the basketball card landscape was so different in this era. But I really appreciate the fact that this set provided a lot of guys with their first card, including Bob Nedelicki, who you heard from a little earlier at the transition. He's been on the show before. Just a side note, you might remember me asking how much money he made from his tops cards, and he emphatically said, zilch. I'm not going to call Bob a liar. There was a lot of weird stuff going on with licensing back then, but I, you know, I don't know. I know players in the 57 set made 50 bucks because I've seen pictures of those contracts. That was 14 years before this. I can't find anything from 1971, though, so, you know, who knows? His memory there might be right in that case. Now, in addition to that 233 base card set, each 10-cent pack also yielded a piece of gum and a Topps Trio sticker card. I've heard people debate over the years about the first basketball insert, 
And some of them completely overlook this 70s stuff. Because in, in 1969 even, so I'll go one year before that, 1969, there was a set of folded rulers. To the best of my knowledge, that was the first basketball insert set. In 1970, had the folded up posters. So then that would make this set of 71 trio stickers the third, but still one of the earliest basketball inserts ever. And the insert set also had a couple cards with team logo stickers, and a lot of kids stuck those to the cards of players from the corresponding teams. That's pretty common, so if you see those, now you know what the story is there. The other stickers, well, they just got stuck to anything and everything. Okay, so that's a lot of the logistics. Let's get more into the aesthetics of the set. And if you've never seen this base set, you're in for a treat. It's one of those sets that just screams 70s. I think it might be number one in my book, although 72 and 74 give it a run for its money. But on the front of each card, you have the city or the state name at the top in one color in this really 70s looking retro font. Although, you know, I guess I say retro. It was modern at the time. It's retro now. And the bottom of the card uses a more traditional font with the player's name, the team name, and their position. Between those two fonts, though, is where things get really good because each card has a bright, colorful box with a cropped, posed image of the player inside. Sometimes a full body shot, but there were a lot of headshots as well. More on that in just a moment. Now, just like the previous two years of Topps basketball, there are shots of players wearing warm-up jackets or in some cases wearing their jerseys backwards. The Seattle cards specifically are funny, uh, to me at least, because there was no hiding it. Pretty much everyone has a backwards jersey prominently displayed, except for Bob Rule, who's shown in a full warm-up suit instead, pants and all. And people ask me about this all the time when the topic of vintage basketball cards come up. Why are the jerseys backwards? Because it looks really, really goofy, and that's obviously not the way they were meant to be worn, so why photograph them like that? Well, here's my best possible explanation based on a lot of digging and scattered information and then trying to put all the pieces together myself. For the NBA, Topps had a deal with the Players Association, but not the league itself. And that's backed up by the fine print on the back of the NBA player base cards, because the copyright at the bottom says MBPA for Players Association, but it doesn't say NBA. The ABA cards, on the other hand, say ABAPA and ABA, meaning they had licensing deals with both. So you won't see backwards jerseys on the ABA guys because they weren't necessary. They could show all those team names if they wanted to. Just the NBA guys who had team names on the front. That's where you'll see the backwards jerseys or a lot of the warm-ups and stuff like that, unless they cover them up with a basketball or something a little more creative. So Connie Hawkins is fine, for instance, because his jersey said Phoenix. But if it had said Suns, they would have had to change something for the photo to stand. I did find it strange, though, that team names are on the front of each card, and this is the first year for that. 69 and 70 just had states and cities. Although, if you look closely on these 71s, every one of them has an apostrophe after the name. And one theory I've read is that it could have been a creative workaround to a licensing issue. That sounds plausible, but once again, that part I can't confirm. One more note, the NBA sticker that has team logos and no players on it has all of the licensed logos, but it also has the fine print from the NBA. So apparently, Topps paid for it just for that sticker in some way, uh, but not for the base cards that featured the players. I don't know if they didn't want to give them a cut or whatever, but anyway, that was some sort of arrangement that they had. 
which guess what? That gave kids yet another reason to slap those stickers of those logos onto the cards. Guess what, kids? There's no logos on these, but you can put them on there yourself. All right. So I know I kind of got in the weeds there, but that's a question I get a lot. It needed to be addressed, and that takes care of everything on the front of each card. I won't spend too much time on the backs from the sets because there's just not a lot to say. Uh, It doesn't mean there's not a lot there. I don't want to downplay it because they had write-ups, player stats, trivia, a lot of fun stuff for kids and adults. And to their credit, it's quite a bit different from what we get today. You know, now we might just get a logo and a player name. So there was way more stuff than that back then. Okay, that's it for 1971. The only other thing I could talk about is which cards are the tough grades. I see a lot of talk about that online, but quite frankly, that doesn't interest me. So I'm not going to go there. You can find that in practically every write-up that's out there anyway. Okay, on to the 2000-2001 Topps Heritage set, which will not take nearly as long, but it does require a little bit of context as well, because to properly evaluate a product from 2000, you kind of have to look at two main things. You've got the state of the league itself, and then all the changes and innovations that took place in the card world the 10 years prior to that. So the league component, though, is, is pretty simple to explain. Toward the end of 1998, the NBA entered into a six-month lockout. During that time, in uh, January of 99 to be exact, Michael Jordan retired. That left everyone trying to figure out who exactly would be able to fill that void, both in talent on the court and also marketability. The truth of the matter is, no one could. And even though the 1999 rookie class was pretty solid, there were a couple years in the early 2000s where the classes uh, were just awful. We were excited about guys like Darius Miles and Kenyon Martin and Mike Miller. Let that sink in for a moment. So the state of the league itself was not in a great place. The state of the basketball card world was in a rough spot as well. I talked a little about inserts not long ago. The 90s were a great time for inserts. The decade also marked the rise of numbered cards, parallels, autographs, and of course, memorabilia cards. Back in 2000, pulling a plain jersey swatch was still a pretty big thrill. Well, as jersey cards and autos became more and more popular, manufacturers shifted their focus that way, and I would say card designs and card aesthetics suffered quite a bit in the process. Eventually, the market became saturated with those memorabilia cards, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. I should also point out that that shift in focus to memorabilia cards brought with it a lot more rookie photo shoot relics which just so happened to coincide with those bad rookie classes that I already talked about. So when you combine all that with the lack of creativity on the design side, things in the card world got kind of rough. And I think there are some nice sets and nice products that have been overlooked as a result. One of which, coincidentally enough, is 2000-2001 Topps Heritage, which relies completely on the 71-72 design from almost 30 years before. So... Topps Heritage was first released in 2001 for both basketball and baseball in honor of Topps' 50th year of creating cards. Now, I know some people are going to say, no, no, it's 2000 Topps Heritage basketball. Well, it was the 2000-2001 season, but it came out in the 2001 calendar year. So both of them came out in the 2001 calendar year. While it's become a pretty regular thing in baseball, we only got two Heritage basketball sets. We had this one in 2000 based on the 71 design, and then won the next year that skipped to 74. I'm not sure why. Never seen any official reason for that. Kind of wish they had done 72, but it is what it is. Anyway, there are a lot of really cool nods to the original 71 set 
in this 2000 Heritage product. There was actual thought put into this. Both sets have exactly 233 base cards with the same design. The only difference is there's a Topps Heritage logo toward the bottom left. The 36 rookies in the set are all serial numbered to 1972. And then on top of that, a lot of them are photographed with their jerseys on backwards, which I think is awesome. And then card number 100 is the same Lou Alcindor card that was card number 100 in the original set. And otherwise, it's all modern players. Now, seeing as this was 30 years after the original, they obviously had to add in some stuff to keep up with the time. So there were several insert sets, a couple different relic sets, a pretty tough autograph set, and then a chromium parallel of 60 cards from the base set called Retrofractors, where the veterans are numbered to 272, and then the rookies are out of 72. Even though they're called Retrofractors, unfortunately, they don't have a refractor finish. So if you're looking at them and, and that seems odd to you, you know, you're not the only one that thinks that. Nonetheless, they do have that chromium finish. I think it's a nice way to merge the old and the new. I think they look great, and, and they are pretty tough to find, even though there are 272, or in the case of the rookies, there's 72 out there. Other than that, they did a couple more things related to the original set. I think you could pull 1971 cards in that product. I think they had Kareem autograph redemptions as well, but otherwise, that's it. One major missed opportunity, in my opinion, would be a modern version of the Topps Trio stickers, because those were just such an important part of the original release. You know, why didn't we get those? I'm not sure why. Seems like a no-brainer to me, but it didn't happen. Okay, so anyway, that's a deep dive on those two sets. I know it's been a while since I've done something like that, but part of the reason is it just takes forever. There's a ton of reading that has to be done ahead of time, but a lot of this reading I've been doing voluntarily because I'm just really interested in both sets, and I'm currently trying to collect them all and get them all in the same binder together, which I think will look really cool when it's done. As I close out today, I want to talk a little about retro sets moving forward, because it seems like every time I do a listener mailbag, somebody asks me what top set I want to see make a comeback, and one of my answers is always Topps Heritage, even though it was only around for a couple years in the first place. And one of the things that we've been really deprived of in the Panini era, in my opinion, among other things, is a legitimate retro set. Now, I say we've been deprived of that, but I want to be clear that I think Panini's done everything they can to give that to us. It's just hard when they don't have an established history with basketball cards, and they don't have that intellectual property in-house. So, aside from the acquisition of the Hoops brand, we've had to settle for a lot of old baseball sets instead, like Donruss, and Select, and Revolution, and Pinnacle, and the list goes on. So, one of the things I am looking forward to in the Switch to Fanatics is a return to a dedicated retro set, or at least the potential for one. But only like one a year. I don't want to see them run this history into the ground. And I've said it before, but I think they could reasonably do this before the change in license even takes place. I know it's easier said than done, but if Fanatics could make a deal with the Players Association, I think they could make a really cool throwback set. You know, have the players turn their jerseys backwards, Photoshop the NBA Logo Man patch out, Use the city names, and you're all set. It fits. It just makes sense. I mean, in 71, they were dodging licensing agreements. They can do it here in 2023 as well. My only concern is, whenever Topps has done remakes of old basketball cards in recent years, whether it's the 69 insert in the OTE Chrome, the 72 design in the Chet Holmgren release, 
the 2005 Topps Chrome stuff in the McDonald's set. There's tons of examples out there. All of this stuff, it all looks a little bit off. For whatever reason, they can't get the fonts right. And it's the little details that matter in something like this. And they haven't quite figured those out. But if they do figure them out, and they make a good base set based on the 71 design, they've got my attention. They'll get my money, right? I'll buy it. I'll collect it. And I'll add it to the binder that I'm working on now. All right. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed all of that. I hope I answered any questions you might have about those sets in the process. As usual, you guys can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the website for my affiliate links. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.